Greetings and blessings, saints. Welcome to the Revelation Decoded Podcast. I'm your host and teacher, Gil Maza. We are going through an epic study through the book of Revelation, unlike any you might have heard before. Did the first century Christians understand the book of Revelation when it was first written by the Apostle John? You bet. They understood it and acted on it, and therefore they were spared the greatest tribulation that could ever come upon the Jewish people and the cataclysmic end of the Old Covenant. Think you know the book of Revelation? Come and see. I'll open up with a word of prayer and then we'll get started with our lesson. Oh, Father in heaven, we're so grateful to you for your mercy and grace. And throughout these uh, holidays, especially, Father, um, after all that's gone on this year, we sure need a good Christmas. A lot of people are hurting out there. A lot of people are broken, whether it's jobs, whether it's finances, uh, a lot of things going on. We just we just don't know how far it extends, but we do know that people are hurting, Father. And it is the job of the church to make sure we go out and reach as many as possible, Lord. And throughout the holiday season, when expectations are high, that there is hope, that there is love, that there's charity, that there's mercy and grace, all those things that you offer us all year long, we just ask, Lord, that you please allow us to be that much extra, the church of Jesus Christ on this earth, to be more human than, uh, than, than normal, Father, be more compassionate, more loving, more gracious, more grateful, Father, and more merciful to others. And Father, we ask for that for ourselves as well, Father, as we all are going through our struggles and our own trials and tribulations. We're all going through our own personal issues. A lot of things are new that we haven't had to face before. A lot of things are different that we have to change the way we do business in many different ways. And I just ask for the grace, your strength, and your peace upon us all as we, Lord, continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. One of the ways we can succeed, Lord, is to take you along with us. When Jesus was born, there was no the Messiah was not on the earth, but after he was born, now the world would be completely different facing a, a world with Messiah in it. And that would change everything, Father. And it has changed everything. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we fall short. Sometimes we, we fall away. We uh, get twisted in a knot, forget where we are, forget who we are. But Lord, I just pray for your grace right now. And open up this Bible study to us, Father, as we begin to delve into some new ground in Revelation and some, uh, you know, talk about some things that we thought we long knew that we've known all our lives, but turns out that maybe it's a little bit different than we thought. But I ask for your grace and I ask for an open mind and open heart to be able to listen to the Word of God tonight, Father. Bless us tonight as we continue to study and thank you so much for bringing us together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen for all of you. We are going to finish our study from last week and then continue on the funny thing is the last time i did this we only got through part of that lesson so most of that lesson the last couple of pages actually became the next lesson so i only have a few points to make about last week's lesson and then we can dive in to lesson 10 of revelation decoded lesson 10 of revelation decoded so if you remember, we began to talk last week a lot about what words really mean, how they apply, how they were taken by the Jews in those days, how they would receive those words and understand them. And it's not quite the same as if when we hear them today. When we hear words of the Bible today, we try to look at them through the eyes of our lives and experiences, our culture, our society, things like that. As you grow 
in your faith and belief in God and you study the Bible, you begin to understand and realize that you do need a little bit of a cultural background about what you're reading, how people lived in those days, how they talked, what, how they communicated with each other, what idioms mean, what phrases meant in those days and what they meant to them, as opposed to what they can mean to us. Because as you can see, the Bible has caused a lot of problem with people translating it or people that get upset at the Bible because the way it talks, it seems rude. It seems obnoxious. It seems exceedingly cruel sometimes, sometimes a little overwhelming because we're not reading it the way they used to read it in those days. Remember that while every spiritual principle in the Bible applies to us today, these letters were still written in the context, in the lifestyle, in the experiences and understanding and education of the people that wrote it. So they were writing to people in their day, of their day, so that they can understand it properly. So it takes a little bit of work for us, you and I, in the modern world to go back here and read. And some of it is pretty clear cut. Some of it's right there where you can understand it. But other things, we go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This seems a little harsh. It seems a little weird. I don't get this. How does it work? And we do have to be a little bit meticulous about how we approach. That's why it's good to read commentaries and see what people uh, that have done the work. You can read how they interpret it, how they read it and understand it. And as you read different commentaries, you read different lessons, you go to different Bible studies, you go to Sunday school or a Sunday sermon, you can begin to gather all that information and eventually it should form a good solid picture of the Bible and uh, what it means and you get a you start getting a working knowledge of the scriptures so that when you encounter things in life today you realize well this does apply now as it did back then because we have changed technologically we have changed culturally socially in all manner of different ways but humanity has not changed in their nature one iota one bit and the Bible, if nothing else, is a handbook on human nature. And that's where we can trust it and we can depend on it. The Bible doesn't have to say don't steal cars, specifically, for us to understand we don't go out and, and, and steal cars. In principle, it has everything we need to be able to make good, godly, righteous decisions if we want to. <laughs> A lot of times we just don't want to. A lot of times we rather do what we need to do, what we feel is necessary to get what we need or how we need it. And that's what mainly, if if you're honest, like I'm honest, at least right now I'm being honest with you, right? Can I be honest? At least now we can say most, a lot of times we don't want, we know what the right thing is, but we, we tend to go the other direction. And that's what ends up getting us mostly in trouble. A lot of our own decisions. Okay. So, we were talking about the last thing we talked about in the last Bible study was how the whole congregation or all of the people, all eyes shall see them. Does that mean all, the entire world, the entire planet? Well, no, it, it doesn't. It's in the context of what, how they were reading it. And that's what we're truly going to get into right now. So I don't feel like I have to backtrack too much to replay any, a lot of the last lesson. I'm going to kind of just jump in here and discuss 
specifically, the last thing we're talking about is when we read Revelation. In fact, let's just go to Revelation 1, verses 7 through 8. Revelation 1. And I'll read that passage again just to make my final point, And then we'll go on to Lesson 10. It says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, He who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. So when we take a close look at that passage, we see two very important qualifiers. That means indicators of who's being talked to here. Okay, the first one is the eyes of those who see him. Okay, who could that be? Who can that be? The eyes of those who see him. That says the tribes of the earth. Uh, and it says those who pierced him. And it says the tribes of the earth. So now whoever is that is going to see him coming in the clouds, all those eyes who see him, they have to fall under the, the qualification of being one of those who pierced them and those who are of the tribes of the earth. And as we'll study later on in chapter in lesson 10, it's going to be tribes of the land that's going to make more sense there because the word can be translated land and it I and I propose to you that it's actually better translated land. So then when it says the passage says every eye will see him, but then it adds the explanatory word in the Greek chi, meaning to include to include those who pierced him. So the way that can be translated in a way that's a little more clear for us to understand, you can actually say, every eye shall see him, even that is along with or including those who pierced him. You see, and every eye will see him because every eye, everybody in that land will understand and know of his coming. It's not going to be done in secret. So then who are the ones who pierce the Lord. I had always been taught that it was all of humanity who was responsible for his crucifixion due to the fact that he died for the sins of all humanity for all time. We are positionally or spiritually responsible for his death. That's what I've been taught and then maybe that's what you've been taught. We have also been taught that it was ultimately the Romans who uh, were held responsible for crucifying Jesus. But that isn't what's being said here. And the Bible doesn't teach anywhere that it was the Romans who crucified him. But isn't that being, uh, um, that isn't what's being said here, right? And the Bible doesn't teach that. Certainly every generation has to make a decision for or against Jesus Christ as being the Messiah or not. But no other generation in the history of humanity will ever have the chance to turn him over to the Roman authorities and have him crucified. So, who does the Bible hold responsible for the actual physical crucifixion of our Lord? And that is what's going to be the main focus of this next lesson. So I'll open it real quick. Yeah, Gail? Yes. For those of us who have been through it before, this is a really good reminder. So that's kind of why I don't have anything to say. You know what, uh, Brenda, it's so funny that mm -hmm. I've actually enjoyed doing it the second time even more because I feel like 
it's sunk in better. I've done a lot of research since then. I've began to understand it a lot more clearly as well. So I feel a lot better myself presenting it now. And it just seems to sink in a little better. And I understand and I'm, and I'm really catching a lot of more details as well. So I think a lot of people would agree with you that the second time around has actually been a little refreshing because the first time was a shocker, right? The first time we spent, um, and that's why these Bible studies were, I mean, we took weeks and weeks and weeks to get this far. And we've actually gone a little faster this far uh, now because, first of all, it's probably a little difficult for a lot of you to ask questions throughout this this interaction, the way this works. But it's like there's not the shocker of hearing this stuff for the first time like some of you might be right now and going, wait a minute, that is not what I've been taught this whole time. That is not what I heard this whole time. What the heck are you trying to do here, you know? So we actually had that. Remember, we had to iron out a lot of questions. We had to really dig into a lot of minutia there to really be able to get the stuff to sink in. But I think this time has actually been a little bit smoother. Okay, so we are on the first page of chapter, I'm sorry, of lesson 10. Lesson 10. And it's going to focus again on verse 7. Verse 7. Because this verse right here is so power-packed that we are, need to take our time with it because believe it or not, this is going to help us really be able to sail into the next chapters. When you understand this one, it, it opens up a, the world for all the rest of the, uh, of the chapters in Revelation. It literally does begin to decode Revelation right before your eyes. And it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierce them, right? To include those who pierce them and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it shall be. Amen. The shocking truth that we are about to carefully examine and consider is that the judgment that Jesus is calling down upon those who pierced him in Revelation is the judgment and punishment of the first century Jews who not only rejected Messiah, and demanded his torture and death upon a Roman cross, but also tried to wipe out his New Testament church off the face of the earth by any and all means necessary. And it starts at these verses right here. Go with me to John 1 verses 10 through 11. John 1 verses 10 through 11. Here... After being told who Jesus was, the word with God, was God, came into being, it says that uh, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came into his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Who's that talking about? The people he came to save was the nation of Israel, and those who were his own, his own kin, his own flesh and blood, his own people did not receive him. But as many as received him, it says, he gave to them the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. Right? So there were people who did receive him, who did come to him, who, be, who, who, come, who became Jews, who became fulfilled, completed. The contract was, was settled with them and they were on the good side of that contract. The contract that gets the blessings, not the contract that gets the curses. In Matthew 3 verses 7 through 10, John the Baptist is preaching. 
And it says uh, here, and we use this we use this example about all, right? It says, then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But look what, they, look what John the Baptist says. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, welcome, brothers. God bless you. You know, step into the water. No, it's not what he said, right? That would have what he said would have been antithetical to any seeker-friendly church on the planet. He said, "You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore, keep uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves." We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. In other words, they can't depend on being saved simply because they were Israelites or Jews. Right? You, you say Abraham's your father? Well, I can raise these stones, children of Abraham, out of these stones. I can make him sing praises if I want him to. Right? Don't, don't suppose, he says, that you can say to yourselves that. He says, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. So here he's telling them plainly, don't depend on your Jewish roots. Don't depend on your own faith, on your own works. My presence here is telling you, Jesus says, that the time has come. The end of the first age, the beginning of the second. Remember, the Jews only believe in two ages of humanity. The age before Messiah and the age afterwards. Okay, and all those that came to him did believe. Obviously, the Pharisees and the Sadducees went there as a show because he, Jesus was commanding a crowd. So you always want to be part of a crowd, part of a mob. And but they weren't there for sincere reasons. Right? They're not going to fool God. They're not going to fool the Holy Spirit. They could not fool John the Baptist. And so go with me to chapter 11 in Matthew, verses 16 to 24. And here... <laughs> Jesus says, I can't win for losing with you guys. He says, but what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who called out the other children and say, we played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge. You did not mourn. A dirge is a funeral song, a mourning song. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And you say he had a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. That's powerful. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than in the day of judgment for, uh, than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom which occurred in you, you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than in the day of judgment than for you. Who's you? Well... The Pharisees and Sadducees that did not believe in him. That did not believe in him. So he's very powerful there. And not long after this, the religious leaders accused Jesus of being in league with Satan. 
because he cast out demons. Can you imagine accusing Jesus of being with Satan? Go with me to Matthew 12, 24. I'll, I'll start at verse 22. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And the crowds were amazed, and they say, they were saying, This man can't be the son of David, can he? So already in their minds they're going, you know what? There's only one man who can speak to demons like that and take care of business. That has to be Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard that they were mumbling that to themselves, he says, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Right? And that's where Jesus went in there and explained, Hey, you know, a house divided against itself falls. So it made no sense. Our Lord again Right? John the Baptist did it over there. Our Lord again calls him brood of vipers in Matthew 12, uh, Matthew 12, 34. And then they're condemned by their own words in Matthew 12, 37. It says, by your own words, you will be justified. And by your own words, you will be condemned. And we're going to see later on that they did, ex do, they did exactly that. They called the curses upon themselves. And by their own words, they were condemned because they weren't willing to receive the promise that the first covenant offered as a fulfillment, which was Jesus Christ, our Lord. He fulfilled the entire Old Testament covenant. And so remember, in an agreement, there's a party here and there's a party on the second part. And there's rewards for following the covenant and there's uh, punishments or uh, you know, for disobeying and not following, those that didn't um, that didn't honor the covenant get the, the the punishment, and those that honor the covenant get the reward. And those who recognize Jesus as the Messiah, spoken of through all the years, right? All the hope and fears of all the years were met in Him that night. He is the one, and therefore, you're on the good side of that covenant. You get the blessings. You get paid. You're on the bad side of the covenant. You don't get paid. In fact, what you have gets taken away. And that sound, that might sound familiar to you. Jesus mentioned it later. Now, in Matthew 21, verses 33 to 45, we are given a very, very stark and blunt insight as to the condition Israel was in before God. Let's go to Matthew 21. And at, once I'm done with this segment, I'll open it up for questions. In Matthew 21, starting at verse 33, and it's a bit long, but trust me, it'll be worth it. Matthew 21, starting at verse 33, it says this. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, 
When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Then, <laughs> as you're going to see later, the Pharisees themselves answered the question. They said to him, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, and they'll rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Then Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become a cornerstone. And that came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Right? He who is with me is not with me is against me, and he who is against me scatters right like the dust. When the chief priest, listen to this, and the Pharisees heard the parables, they understood he was speaking about them. Boom. You can't answer because I can't hear you anyway, but who is the landowner who plants the vineyard? I think everybody would agree that that uh, landowner is God. Who are the vine growers or tenants of that vineyard? That is the nation of Israel. Who are the servants and slaves sent to the vineyard to collect its produce? Well, that was the prophets. That was the prophets. So, bing, right? It, it, boy, it just opens that so much now. What happens to these prophets from God? Well, they're beaten, they're stoned, and killed to the very last one. And who did the beating, the stoning, and the killing? Well, the tenants. And we already decided that the tenants are the nation of Israel. The landowner then says he thinks his, you know, they have to accept and respect his son, right? So he's going to send him. Who is the son? Obvious. No-brainer, Jesus. The tenants say to each other, Wait, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. Now you're going to say to me, Wait, 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 wait a minute. How would they really, did they know what they were doing when they crucified the Lord, when they attacked him, when they, when they beat him and tortured him? I say they did. They did know this. How do I know that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Go with me to John chapter 11. We'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt. We'd like to say, you know what? They just didn't know what they were doing. But unfortunately, this says different. This says different. So in John 11, 47 to 53, John 11, 47 to 53, listen to this. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? This man is performing many signs. Now remember, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And they're in a tizzy. What are we doing for this man is performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Did you catch that? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what were they most worried about? That this might be Messiah? That this could be Messiah? 
Remember back when the Magi came to Herod and asked, we're, we're looking for the king of the Jews. Do you happen to know where he's born? Man, they were open the scriptures and they knew. They say, oh, buddy, we got you. I think they should have said to themselves, whoa, whoa, whoa. If, if this is true and Messiah is born, why would, we, why would we let Herod know so that he could possibly, because they knew he was a paranoid megamaniac. But they blithely walk up to Herod and say, no problem. He was born in Bethlehem. Right? Or Bethlehem of Judea, you know, he read them, they read him the scriptures. So they gave up the Messiah willy-nilly, not even thinking, whoa, what if this is the case? Why would they do that? But because they were more worried, as it says in John, about their place and their nation. About their place and their nation. And so to continue, it says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people so that the whole nation not perish. Now he meant it one way, but they tell us, but John the Apostle tells us that's not what uh, the Holy Spirit is the one that spoke here. He thought he meant it one way, but God meant it a whole other. Because John tells us, now he did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Boom. So, Caiaphas is saying, we got to make sure this guy dies so the Romans don't come back and take our stuff, right? It's, it's important that he does die so that we survive. Survive how? Survive the way we've been surviving this whole time. Not that nobody can take away our place in our nation. But John says that's not what, he, that's not what, it, what the meaning was at all. He was actually prophesying that Jesus was going to die for the sins, right? For their sins. And not only, but then he goes on, and not only the nation only, but in order that he might gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Who are the children of God who are scattered abroad? Well, lucky for you and lucky for me, them is us. We're the children scattered abroad. So John is saying, Caiaphas was prophesying that Jesus wasn't going to just die for the nation of Israel, but die for all his children on the planet that would eventually come to believe in Jesus as the Christ, as Messiah, as their Savior. So from that day on, what did they do? They planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. It might go into 53. Okay, so that's where I'll stop. But... They went into this eyes wide open. They understood what they were doing and they decided, you know what? We've been at this too long. We need a political leader, not a savior of our souls. I don't want to have to look within myself and, and, and clean my own act. I just need someone to come here and make life better for all of us, right? Deliver us from Rome, get us back to our own lands, make us kings of our own lands again. They wanted nothing to do with that spiritual salvation. And you know what? That's typical of humanity. That's typical of humanity. Why do people reject Christ? They reject him because they'd rather have lordship over their own lives. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be having to look within themselves and have to take stock of their own humanity, having to take stock of their own sins and failures and weaknesses. And it's a hard mirror to look into if you don't have Christ there standing next to you. I know it is for me. When I look, think back of the things that I've been saved from, I've been cleansed and healed from, forgiven from, I don't ever want to forget them because I never want to be that person ever again. 
So you know, you understand and you know the feeling, the idea of being cleansed and healed and forgiven and redeemed and saved, right, by his sacrifice. But they did not want that at all. Now, the landowner, so, so uh, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So what does that translate to? Well, the crucifixion, the crucifixion. And that's how this parable plays out. I, don't, I always thought it meant something entirely different, but now when you break it down like this, doesn't it seem to really make more sense to really stand out and really I mean, speak to you? It's like the scriptures come alive. How, who does God hold responsible for this evil, this act of evil and rebellion? Well, he holds the tenants, Israel, responsible because look at his reaction and response. What was his reaction to, to that whole thing? Let me go back to Matthew real quick, 21. What was God's reaction to them killing his son? His reaction, one, was exactly what the chief priests and Pharisees themselves said the reaction was going to be. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. He will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds of proper seasons. Who are the other vine growers who will pay him proceeds at the proper seasons, everybody from that time on that received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. Now we're the tenants. We're the, we're the growers. We're the ones working the land now. Jew or Gentile that believes in Jesus Christ, we're those ones that are now paying back the proceeds at a proper time, okay? The proceeds at a proper time. Interestingly enough, Jesus actually asked the scribe and Pharisees what the landowner should do, and they literally hanged themselves by their own words. Hoisted by their own petard, as it were. In other words, foiled or beaten by their own actions themselves. There's another example of that in 2 Samuel 12. If you want to run back to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Starting at verse 1 through 7, it says, Then the Lord said to Nathan, uh, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now remember, David had just committed adultery with Bathsheba and forced her husband into the front lines of the war so that he could be killed. He tried to bring him back so that he could cover it up and maybe he could get his own wife pregnant, but didn't quite work. This guy was just too faithful to the cause, he's too faithful to his men. And he died and he suffered because of it. He was punished for it by being put in the front lines and then killed. So now David is moved in, moved her in the house. She's pregnant. He thinks it's happily ever after. But here comes Nathan the prophet. And he comes to David and he said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and one poor, David and Uriah the Hittite. The rich man had many great flocks and herds. That was David with everything, including wives and concubines. The poor man had nothing but this one little ewe lamb. That is, all he had was Bathsheba. Which he brought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. And he would eat of this bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And he was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take his own from his own flock or his own herd. To prepare for the wayfarer who would come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him oh right david gets angry he said it says right here david's anger burned greatly against the man and he said to nathan as the lord lives 
Surely this man who has done this deserves to die. <laughs> so here, he doesn't realize quite yet that Nathan is talking about him, just like at the moment when Jesus is talking about what's going to happen to those vineyard own to the uh, vineyard tenants who kill his servants, who kill his son. And they say, well, he's going to deal with those wretches. And that's exactly what David does here. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is you I anointed as king over Israel. And it is you who, and I who delivered you from Saul's house. And he begins to tell him, you're the man. So see how David gets trapped by his own words. He calls judgment upon the person he thinks it's, that's doing this uh, ghastly deed. And it was him the whole time. Jesus is doing the same thing here in this parable of the tenants with these guys. They say to him, they hang themselves by their own words. They say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They say, he will rent the vineyard to the other tenants. And what does Jesus reply to them? Very interesting. Go back. Let's go back to Matthew. Back to Matthew 21. Jesus then reminds him, did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is wonderful, marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and giving to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Right? Scatter him like dust. So... They gave the answer, you know. I had always thought this was a parable about the second and final coming of Christ. But it seems so much clearer now. They literally hung themselves by their own words, but it would, wouldn't be the last time. In Matthew 27, 19 to 25, let's go there. Matthew 27, 19 to 25. Listen to what they did again to themselves. Listen to how they call upon the, the curses upon themselves. Matthew 27, 19 to 25. It says, While he was sitting in the judgment seat, that is Pontius Pilate, he says, His wife sent them a message saying, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas, and to put Jesus to death. Who persuaded the crowds? The chief priests and the elders. Persuaded the crowds and asked for Barabbas and put Jesus to death. The governor said to them, Which of you two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to him, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Messiah, called Christ? What do they say? Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. Who? The unbelieving Jews and the leadership there. Specifically the leadership. Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people said, listen to this. This is where it should make your blood chill. His blood shall be upon us and upon our children. Wow. They called that awful curse 
onto themselves. They would rather see a murderer freed than the Messiah, the Christ. Having released Barabbas to them, he had Jesus scourged, handed him over to be crucified. So they were the ones that made this happen. They were the ones that made this happen. We heard this awful curse that the first century unbelieving Jews collectively, collectively not only called it upon themselves, but they said, you know what? Make our children responsible for it too. Mm-hmm. I think they should have thought that one through a little bit before beforehand. I'll open it up for questions. Well, why would God honor this curse? Do you honor this curse to be, to fall on their children when the children were innocent? I mean, I, that's, I have a hard time with that one. I, I don't blame you. I don't blame you, right? Because, again, you're reading it in, with your 21st century mindset as opposed to reading it the way it was intended there. And here's the thing. Here's the thing, right? They inadvertently called this curse upon themselves because they had stopped believing in the word of God that basically said that was going to happen. In other words, this isn't new information. If you read from Deuteronomy 36 all the way to uh, 26 to 31, you'll see that God calls curses and curses and curses upon the people and the next generation because unfortunately, it's not that God is making that happen. It is, it is their unbelieving life and ways that is bringing it upon their children. What I do, the sins I commit, the whatever it is I do, affects my kids. And unfortunately, if left unchecked and not breaking the cycle, those kids are going to do the same thing to their kids and those kids are going to do the same thing to their kids. Is that God doing that? Is that God arbitrarily on purpose Punishing, punishing, punishing them? No, he's just saying, you know what? Your unbelief here, your rejection of Messiah is going to reverberate and affect every generation behind you. And then they themselves call a curse upon themselves that they believe no longer matters because it's Old Testament. Who believes it anyway? Who believes that anymore? They don't believe this guy's Messiah anyway. So they, to them, they're like, this guy isn't Messiah anyway. Why should I worry? And so, yes... Their actions there did cause consequences for their children and their children behind them. But not because God made that happen, but because they made that happen because of their unbelief. As we do today. Every kid that suffers today suffers because somehow, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not. But it's the actions of our parents. You know how many times I've had my kids come back on me about something I did years ago? Come back on their mother for something? Oh, this is the reason I do this because you did this to me when I was a kid. Yeah. And in some cases, you know what? It's true. <laughs> what can you do? Yeah, I did. Sorry. I was young myself. I didn't know any better. I apologize. You know, they buy you an ice cream. You know, I mean, we just do. It's human nature. But to read this in our eyes today, it does look like God is saying, you know, okay, you say you want me to punish your children? Guess what? We're going to punish your children. No, 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 no. In the Jewish mindset, okay, God sees everything. So in their view, he controls it all. But unfortunately, in the skewed view of these unbelieving Jews, they no longer were accept. They didn't accept Jesus as Messiah. They didn't receive him as Messiah. So it was easy for them to say, you know what? Let his blood be upon our heads and our children. What does it matter anyway? This is just another human being claiming to be a Messiah no big deal. 
But unfortunately, these words, this particular time, came back to haunt them greatly. But not because of God, because of their own actions. They were on the wrong side of the covenant. And that's where they remained. Make sense? Yeah, so, you know, so, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of getting what you're saying, but as of now, I mean, it seems like to me that all those young kids died for no reason because, I mean, the Jewish people still, most of them don't believe in Jesus, is that correct? Well, uh, any, uh, yeah, the, the, obviously the Jews that don't believe, don't believe Jesus is Messiah, correct? Many of them, most of them. Yeah, so, I mean, so God punished those kids still, you know, because we still have all these unbelieving, unbelieving Jews. Sure. But who's punishing those kids? Who's forcing them into a life of unbelief again, in, 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 uh, walking with God on this earth? God? No. <laughs> Who made those decisions? The, the parents made their own decisions. The kids fed off those decisions and they're living it. Why, can't, why do we blame God for allowing their own, the, the consequences for their own sins? He allows it on you. He allows it on me. Because what do we say? God, you leave me alone. Let me do what I want. And he says, absolutely. Adam and Eve did the same thing. They wanted to be like God. They wanted the knowledge of good and evil. And they understood the concept of good and evil. But when they finally made it real by grabbing the apple and whatever it was or taking a bite of it, that's when they, the eyes were opened. Why? Their eyes were opened to the fact that while evil was a concept in their mind, they realized they made it reality by their actions. And it's a, been the same ever since. So again, I find it difficult to blame God because he has done everything he possibly can to open our eyes, to make us realize, to make us understand, to do all these things he did. And we still will deny him, watch, make our lives go, you know, go wrong. Our lives go wrong. We watch our kids' lives go wrong. And then we shake our fist at him going, why are you doing this to us? Seriously? Makes no sense to me. Well, yeah, I get that, but uh, when kids have no, no knowledge of between right and wrong yet at that age, that's what's kind of like running me a little bit the wrong way. Okay. Have you ever done wrong to your kids? Oh, yeah. Have, your kids, have your kids ever suffered because of you or, uh, you or your wife? I don't think so. Yeah, you know, I agree with that. So you did a good job, okay? But the thing about it is, is that while I sympathize with you with the sentiment that why should kids suffer? Why do kids suffer? Why are kids out there? Why are we strangers, right, at my station, uh, in my workstation, getting together and trying to find kids out there that aren't going to have a Christmas, that aren't going to celebrate Christmas, that are broken, that are broke, the parents haven't worked, they, they can barely eat, and we want to provide them a good Christmas. See, that's us walking in the kingdom of God, trying to reverse the curse, but we can't, we can't change what the parents do to them and then the decisions they end up making on their own. Because you can blame your parents for up until a certain point, but after a while, you're the one making the decisions. You're the one deciding this is how I'm going to act and what I'm going to do. Okay, so I, I, I know exactly where your question is coming from, from a heart of, you know, that, that it, it breaks your heart to see kids suffer. 
But again, you know, we have to be accountable for our actions. We have to be responsible human beings. And we have to be the ones to say, I am going to make sure my kids grow up good. They have what they need. They become good, good uh, kids and they become good adults. Train them to become good adults so that the curse doesn't continue. And therefore, you have the blessing of, and, and that's one thing that I love about you and Sandra. You know, when I go to church, I look over and I see your entire family there every Sunday, you know, and I wish I had that. I want my son to come. I want my grandkids to be there with me. And I'm working on that and I'm praying for that and I'm trying my best to, to reach them for that, right? But they're suffering the consequences of their own actions now. I can't blame myself. And at this point now, I can't blame their parents for the things that they're going through and what they're suffering right now. You know what I mean? So, so we have to look at this. You have to look at a bigger picture here and really take let humanity needs to take responsibility for what they do. They need to realize that they're not free to do whatever they want, however they want, and pursue their selfishness, their sinfulness, their evil, and uh, and then you know look at the wreckage behind them and say, well, I you know punish me then God, but leave my kids alone. It doesn't make any sense. That's not free will. Your kids, you have to decide. I have to decide. Our kids have to decide for God themselves at one point and not make the decision based on you me or anybody else their ultimate decision to follow god has to be their own because they can't be grandfathered in your kids if for some reason that one of them was an unbeliever and they're sitting at that church for years it doesn't matter if they don't make that decision for them all those years you took in the church my thing make no difference at all because they have to make eventually at one point they have to make the choice for themselves Thank you. This concludes part one of Lesson 10, Behold, He is Coming in the Clouds, part two. Please join us for part two of this lesson in the next study. God bless you. <laughs>